0: Snap Production. Dolly Alderton is an author, podcaster, and journalist, most well known for writing on the topics of relationships with lovers, friends, and family. Dolly is wise and talks about the human experience we all inhabit its heartbreak and its possibilities of both destroying and saving. This conversation with Dolly has a different flavour than my usual. It's profound and interesting, but in a Dolly way. In the conversation of this hour, we discuss friendships and how they evolve and change with time. The pressure for women to look good and how she has dealt with that. And the wisdom Dolly has learnt from her psychologist over the years. I
1: did a session yesterday with her. One where it felt like I'd been in like an emotional gym. You know, I'd been on like this emotional treadmill for an hour, I was just like so red in the face from tears at the end. And it just felt great and having that relationship, that long relationship with a psychologist just works very, very well for me now.
0: I'm Sarah Grimberg and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices, and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Dolly Alderton is the author of many books, including the bestseller, Everything I Know About Love, Ghosts, and her newest book, Good material. In its essence, this conversation is about the importance of empathy, meeting resistance with patience, and how we all have the ability to heal. May our exchange leave you seeking to more courageously explore the way you think and, above all, the impact you leave on others. So, why do you think you're so popular in Australia, Dolly? <laughs> so, my theory is.
1: Because I've been popular in Australia sort of since the beginning of my career. And I really noticed it with the Hilo. Pandora and I noticed we had this great Australian listenership. Yeah. And we were like, why has this happened? And then I started looking into other English women that have done really well in Australia. And it's like Miriam Magalese and the two fat ladies. Do you know You know who I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, The two chefs. What is connecting all of these birds? We're all loud, we're all posh, and we all eat and drink too much. So that is what I think is the key to success in Australia.
0: <laughs> you know what? I reckon you're spot on. I reckon it's Do also you? just all those people say what they think. You know, it's that Aussie where they just kind of like Larry they say it how it is, and I think Aussies really like that. Yeah,
1: I think they do really like that. And they also, they've never given me a hard time. Really? Like on socials and stuff? Never. Of all the readers and listeners that I have, there is so much good faith reading and listening from my Australian Australian readership. I don't think I've ever received an email or a DM or a tweet that has wound me up from an Australian
0: person. (laughs) (laughs) What country do you think is more likely to send something that would be a little bit unnerving? Probably English, I think. Why?
1: I think there's a there's a, a ness to English culture. You know, there's a reason why, like, the letters pages of newspapers thrive in this country. I don't know if you have that in Australia. I think there's, like, a great tradition. A.A. A. Gill wrote about it very compellingly. I think there's a great tradition in England for... Anger and mm. passive aggression and discontent and complaining. I think, I think we really like complaining.
0: Yeah. Well, the tabloids over there from, I know the US can be harsh, but like, you know, just going over everything from the monarchy and stuff like that. The English are the fiercest that I've ever, most ferocious, I think I've ever witnessed in my life.
1: Yeah, totally. It's, um, it's completely ruthless over here. It's and and that and and actually it's it's probably now like the tamest it's ever been. Really? Yeah. And when you watch there's you know, there's quite a big reckoning happening over here culturally with um, tabloid culture and celebrity culture of the noughties in particular, where everyone's kind of looking back on how people were interviewed or how headlines were structured, there just seems to be a real enough time has passed that we're having a real moment of examination of all that stuff. And it is so shocking when you read and hear the way that particularly women, obviously in the public eye, were spoken about and their privacy was invaded and the way they were hounded. And I remember being a kid at that point, like being in my early teens, but it was my predominant entertainment. I thought nothing of it. I was so complicit in it all.
0: I was also quite young when a lot of that happened and I was watching like The Crown or something like that. And going back onto what happened with Diana and even Charles, how they tapped into all of those phone lines and got this information. And yeah, some of it wasn't ideal, but at the end of the day, these are private conversations. Totally. How that could happen, that whole news of the world stuff, that was crazy. I know.
1: I've now got to a point because I've had, like, small... Obviously not on that scale at all, but I have small... I've experienced small moments of my privacy being invaded on the basis of me being a public person. And it is so horrific that I now have such a reaction if I see that there's a really juicy story about someone but it involves something of private documents or private conversations I, it makes me so anxious I won't even click on the story I won't even I can't even engage with stories like that I can't participate in the ruination of someone's life via the invasion of their privacy I, I, I just can't the, all the enjoyment has been taken out of that now and that is quite a British tradition of of, yeah like of scandal, and I remember hearing Zadie Smith speak about it so well where she was like you would enjoy you would you would buy a tabloid for like fifty p and you would enjoy someone's life being ruined, and it would be something that you would like read while you ate your egg and chips like it's yeah. it's so
0: such a strange form of entertainment. How do you deal with being in the public eye, like when they do write stuff about you or if they post, you know, what they love doing, not about you. I've not seen anything about you, but I know with celebrities in general, really unflattering photos. So they'll like capture Mm. someone mid-yawn or when they've got like a triple chin, even though they could be so thin. Mm. They do it on purpose because they know that that will sell papers or magazines or whatever. When you read that stuff about yourself or see any unflattering photos, how do you deal with that?
1: Sarah Pascoe, the comedian, said something brilliant to me once where we were talking about confidence. And she said, the confidence that you need to be an artist is you need to have toddler energy. So you know the way toddlers walk out with their little pot bellies sticking out and their hands on their hips and they're sort of stomping around. That is the state that you have to be in when you're trying to write something or make something that you think that the world will enjoy. You have to be in this blind toddler state of building with your big colourful Brits and knocking things over and (laughs) making a mess everywhere. And you have to feel uninhibited. And the minute that you get a a modicum of success, obviously like toddler state and the freedom of that and the creativity of that, the like unbridled potbelliness of that, becomes really threatened because you feel so self-conscious all the time and that's a really difficult thing to balance and I think you just have to I mean I I, I do a lot of therapy to process mainly like so my work doesn't suffer and my brain doesn't suffer but to process like what it is to be a public person as well as what it is to just continue making work that you're proud of and getting better at that work and for that to be the main focus and to have like a happy and sane life. And I think a lot of that work is for me pretending that people don't know who I am and they're not expecting my work. So for example, with the photos thing, I obviously don't have like paps or anyone taking pictures of me. What I do have is like very unflattering photos taken when I'm talking, when I'm doing speaking events or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that is rough because I feel like most women, I don't know if you got to this point, since I've got to like my early, like my mid-30s, I'm like pretty, I'm pretty happy with the way that I look now. I'm pretty bored of that taking over my thoughts. Yes. You know, I leave the, I leave the flat every day and I think, you know, you're working with what you've got. You're a bit of all right. <laughs> You're a bit of all right, you know how to dress, you've got a nice face, whatever. It doesn't really matter that much anymore. You're looking good, girl. And then what is difficult is when you see those photos, you are aware of the lie that you tell yourself every day. <laughs> 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 so it's like this dismantling of this thing that you have to do, which is like a great act of love for yourself every day. And the thing that means you don't think about the way you look anymore. I have to do that as a daily practice because I want to get on with life. And what's annoying with those photos is it kind of robs you of that.
0: Yes. With therapy, what sort of therapy do you do? Is it like a psychologist or psychotherapist? Or she's So I did do Freudian therapy for years, yeah. which was, I think, like, it was like a very full-on,
1: but very good, like, a sort of unshakable basis for me of therapy of, like, Understanding therapy language, understanding what the relationship is. I have to say, you actually look quite a lot like her, which is oh, the probably why I'm going to open. Yeah, my first one. You look a lot like her. A very beautiful dark-haired woman. Anyway, so that's so like that's maybe why I'm going to be opening up too much to you. Um, but yes, yeah, so I started with her, and then now I'm with. I've been with the same woman since I was 30, and I went. I started speaking to her basically after I had success with the book. The biggest mistake I made with the first therapist was I stopped therapy a, a month before my first book came out. I don't know why I did that. I, and then the, I thought of, I sort of ran out of things to, to talk about. And then, obviously, the book did well, and I realised there was just this hole. I entered, opened a secret door, like a jib door, into this like whole other ballroom of problems that I didn't realise I was going to have. So I kind of stupidly thought that success would mean a subtraction of problems <laughs> rather than a multiplication of new ones. I've been with her and she's a, she's a psychologist. She uses CBT theory with me. Um, she's very different to that first therapist, but she's, I, I honestly, I did a session yesterday with her. Um, one where it felt like I'd been in like an emotional gym and I was like, you know, I've been on like this emotional treadmill for an hour. was just like so red in the face from tears at the end. And it just felt, great. And having that relationship, that long relationship with a psychologist just works very, very well for me now.
0: I think there's something, you know, I know definitely for women, there's something in just talking. I mean, I know for myself, and maybe it's the occupation that both you and I are kind of in, but if there's something going on with me, I just need to talk to someone about it. And I know that people talk like when we hear about listening, people always say like, you don't need to say anything back. You just need to listen. And I do agree with that. But at the same time, I actually like the person I'm talking to to talk back and like give me their advice, hence why I'm like opening Mm. up to them. And I just think it's so important, like even if it's a friend or partner or someone like that, that when you just bottle it inside, It just festers sometimes and I think that sometimes when it's our own problem, even if we might have a lot of the tools we know about them, sometimes you just need to be able to speak to someone else to hear what they have to say and then you just, it's just a relief. Totally.
1: And I agree, I couldn't have one of those therapists that is sort of silent, silently absorbing. Yeah. In fact, I had a really good moment with her yesterday where in the middle of one of my big cries, I was talking about choices, about making good choices. And I was like, I was like, you know, I definitely made a good choice with that guy from how many years ago. Cause so I was like, because sidebar. I had a bit of gossip about his him and his new relationship the other day and I told her and she was like, oh, well, that's very satisfying to hear, isn't it? And it was like this sort of sprinkling of gossip that I actually think that she really enjoyed because she's, you know, when when you're talking with your therapist every week and they absorb this like cast of characters over the years and they remember every single one and when you kind of mention someone like an ex-boyfriend or whatever who you haven't mentioned for four years I can imagine as a writer that being quite exciting yes (laughs) totally to get an update on that character who sort of left the show a few years (laughs) ago and I could tell it brought her genuine enjoyment to hear that um his life is apparently full of misery anyway (laughs)
0: I wonder, you know, you're obviously such an amazing writer, and we are here because you have your beautiful new book, good material. But you've had some really bestsellers, and there must be bloody nerves that go on with then having a new book and going, is this going to do as well, and can I even do better than what I've done? Like I remember talking to Mark Manson about it. His book has just been on that bestseller for like a hundred years, and um, yeah. He got quite depressed after. He was so young when it became so, like the New York Times number one bestseller and then it was like, now what? I wonder like how you've dealt with that or like now, like how you are dealing with it.
1: What I'm about to say will sound very sort of faux zen, but I really do believe it. I think because I never... I never aspired to great wealth. I never aspired to a great like notoriety. I never aspired to fame. I never aspired to... I've never felt really like in competition with myself. I've always had very specific goals, but they were about making things, making things that were really good that I was really proud of and getting better at making things. That has always been steadily what I've done since I was like 15 years old with writing. That hasn't really changed... I never, ever thought that that first book that I wrote when I was like 28, I never thought that more than 5,000 people would read it. And if I did, frankly, I wouldn't have written the stuff that I wrote in it. And it would be such a, 28 is so young and I want to live until I'm 100 and I want to (laughs) write until I'm 100. So if my first book was at 28, my biggest book was at 28 and I'm gonna, and I spend the rest of my life somehow trying to recapture whatever that was, I will be depressed for the rest of my life. So I'm not really interested in doing that. I'm interested in getting better at a craft. And I'm interested in staying in contract. I'm not interested in having a number one bestseller every time. I'm interested in making work that's good enough and intriguing enough with a readership that is satisfied enough that someone will continue to give me money, that means that I have I write all day, and the writing all day is the thing that pays my mortgage. That is honestly, truly what I feel. And obviously, there's like a certain amount of stuff that happens around it um, that's about numbers or being relevant, or the, the pressures of that stuff. I do feel I used to feel it a lot more when I was younger. I think more of that kind of stuff is a kind of interesting video game that happens alongside the thing that really matters, which is the quality of your work. And I think with this book, something that I have realized is I'm a good writer. (laughs) I think that I've really understood that with this novel. I will be okay and nothing is gonna be taken away from me and my I'm never the the fact of me being a writer as a job is never going to be under extreme threat because I've done my ten thousand hours, i've I've written good work, and my my work is not obviously perfect, and I've still got a lot to learn. But it continues to to be good and it continues to get better. So I don't feel it doesn't feel my career doesn't feel like it's this palace made of paper anymore. I think that's what I felt in the years after everything I know about love of like there were so many ways that I could talk myself round out of why it had been a success other than it was a good book of it was because I overshared. It was because it was kind of salacious and I was young. It was because I was a Twitter personality. It was because I was you know, I did a huge campaign about it that kind of was distracting. And actually, I really did feel that for years and I really don't feel that now. So I've kind of got a sense of calm that I hope doesn't go because I'm really enjoying it. I'm not feeling as insane. I'm feeling a bit insane in terms of like, nervous about how it would be met by the world, but I'm not feeling, I'm feeling like 10% insane. Whereas with the last, with Ghosts, I felt... And with my TV show, I felt like 90% insane.
0: You mentioned oversharing just before, and I think people love you because you're authentic and relatable. That's that word, relatable. And I wonder though, how do you manage to do that in the sense that do you get worried by saying something about, you know, a relationship or... Obviously, honesty is the best policy, but a lot of people in the public eye show a version of themselves. And I feel like you're very raw and authentic. How did you get over the barrier of going, oh, okay, I'll just, I'll just tell it how it is? Because I do it with so many invisible
1: parameters and boundaries and rules now. I made a decision after the memoir came out that I never wanted to feel that exposed ever again. You know, what got me what got me here won't get me there. I I knew that that was perfect for that book and being honest like that and connecting to all those women in a very vulnerable way, that was exactly what was right for that book. And I never wanted to do it again. So people do know me, but in terms of I'll I'll do conversations like this, um, and this is normally the medium where I feel safest to open up. I don't imprint interviews so much i sound much more like a politician (laughs) because i'm not in control of um how i'm edited i feel like podcasting is a really democratic space actually for that it feels much safer the tone can be read of someone's voice um so i'm uh, having been a print journalist and having done interviews i just know having done transcripts how things can change when they desiccate from speaking to text on the page so i'm much more guarded I don't really share anything. I, I'm personable on social media. I don't really share any specifics of my life. And I've now got to a point that I really wanted to get to a few years ago, and it's not been without an enormous amount of thought, where people know my politics, people know my outlook on life. I think they know my sense of humour. I think they know what's important to me. They know the day-to-day-ish of what my life look like. looks like. No one knows anything about my personal life from the last five years they don 't know where i how many times i've moved they don't know where i live they don't know what my flat looks like they don't know how many relationships i've been in they don't know about my heartbreaks they don't know about my family situation they don't know anything and that was you know i mean, even I, I, I try even not to put too eat much, much with my friends online even anymore and that was very much something that I had to do from, not that anyone was demanding that of me or even that interested, it was just so natural for me that that was how I've always been someone who shared so much. And it just didn't work for me after a certain point. So I stopped doing it and I feel much better.
0: Yeah, well, that makes so much sense. And I think the privacy, especially about where you're living and things like that, that's critical for anyone in the public. I think overexposure of where you are can be detrimental in a big way. I know that you dedicated your book, your newest book, to one of your best girlfriends who Mm. is unwell at the moment. And I wonder for you, how do you navigate having someone so close to you in your life being unwell? How do you manage to do that? It's such a new experience for me. I've
1: lived such a friction-free life in so many ways you know, I've never been really sick. My parents, touch wood, have always been really healthy. All my grandparents died peacefully. You know, I've had, on the whole, I've just had a life of, of great fortune so far. And obviously that can't go on forever. Like, all of us will be touched by tragedy or sadness or illness. Um, but I, I sometimes worry that I'm not really equipped enough for it. Um, you know, when I have had these very scary moments like what I'm going through right now with um, what I'm going through (laughs) being there for Lauren and what she's going through it's you know it feels very adult and it feels very um, scary but I mean the thing that I've noticed is I've had another one of my best friends Farley I wrote about some huge things that she went through in my first memoir she lost her sister and then a few months later she was left by her fiancé before their wedding And something that I've really noticed is I've always been so surprised at the strength and the grace with which those two women meet these very, very difficult life challenges. And something that they've both said to me is, you're such a stranger to yourself until Mm -hmm. something like this happens. You just really cannot predict who you're going to be in that moment? It's like one of life's greatest surprises, in a way. You know, you can be a person who will cry about losing a bus ticket, and then in the face of, a, you know, life-threatening illness, you can greet it with hope and optimism and, and great resilience. We just don't know. I think that's what I've really learned through that, through watching these amazing women tackle these very difficult things.
0: It's so interesting. I absolutely agree with you. You know, I think that we always say like, oh, I could never do that. I don't know how that person does that. And like you said, as soon as it's given to us, we deal with it. I mean, you have no choice Mm. than to move through it. And, you know, I believe that, that you're only given what you can deal with. And we are all equipped to be able to deal with tragedies in our life and inevitably they will come because it's life.
1: I really do believe that as well. I think that you are only kind of given what you can what you can handle. And I think there's I have always been amazed at in the small moments of challenges in my life. As I said, I haven't had any big ones about these hidden resources of strength that I have that I just had no idea were there. And they are all in us that, you know, they're just lying dormant for most of the time because we all have such blessed lives. But yeah, I think that's I think it's a really positive way to frame those moments in life is to know that you specifically have wherever you need to go. And however deep you need to dig, you do have the thing to to battle it.
0: I wonder, do you do any kind of personal development practices? Has your therapist taught you things to do, like with unwanted thoughts or, you know, any meditation or anything like that? So meditation doesn't work for me. And every time I've got one of my best male friends is uh,
1: devoted. He He meditates every single day. And I've seen an amazing change with him. And he's tried to do it with me because he's so convinced that it's the thing that I really need. I have this weird thing with meditation where I feel immediately nauseous and dizzy. Yeah. And like I'm on the top of a building about to fall off. And he was like, I don't understand how you can't see that that metaphor is the biggest instruction that what you really need to do is learn how to be, you know, just in your own, in your head without thoughts or watching thoughts go by or in a moment of like space and contemplation and stillness. It was like the fact that that feels so frightening to you that it feels like you're going to physically fall off a building shows me that you need meditation more than anyone I know. And, you know, recently I did, do you know Elizabeth Day? Yeah, she's been on this podcast. Yeah, Yeah, she's brilliant. We were in Bali together and we did, she took me to my first sound bath.
0: I know where you went because I saw her photos and I've been there and the Pyramids of Chi. Yes. Yes. it's a- God, oh, it was good. For your first sound bath, you went to like the most epic one in the whole world. Yeah, it was amazing. And I was lying next to her. It's like in a pyramid,
1: it's so dark. Yeah. you get I, We were wrapped up in these blankets and I was lying next to her and there was something so comforting about it. I think because of the pyramid shape, this is going to sound so like, Enid Blyton novel. But it looked like we were sort of in the eaves of an attic. Mm. So I was like lying next to my friend in these blankets in the dark, and it felt like we were sort of five-year-olds at sleepover in the 1950s.
0: It's <laughs> and- the perfect temperature in there as well. Like you go oh, from so hot perfect. to in there, and it's like, ah, this is the best.
1: It was so nice. And I had I went into the deepest sleep yeah. when I was in there. But that wasn't, it was like a conscious sleep. It was because I could hear all the sound and I wasn't having any, there was no like dreaming, there was no pictures in my head or anything. It was just this darkness and it felt like maybe being dead or something. It was so peaceful. (laughs) It was incredible. And I found that really easy, I think because I was in a group. Mm. So I don't know, the North London Buddhist Centre is literally right at the end of my road. So I'm like, maybe I need to be doing group meditation. They do group meditation. I think there's something about like, the solitude of, of and the journey of just doing it on my own that brings something up in me that obviously my body finds very uncomfortable. So I think I'm going to try doing more group meditation.
0: I think as well exactly that is good. Learning from a teacher is the best thing and doing it in a group. But with that Pyramids of Chi, because I was just there at the start of the year and um, my 10-year-old son had never done that sort of stuff before and I said, oh, I'd been to Pyramids of Chi before, I said, come and lie next to me when we do it. And then halfway through, because I had the experience where you did, where I also just went into this kind of coma but not dead. Yeah. Not fast asleep but I can't remember a thing. It was just so peaceful and I woke up right at the end and I could hear my son snoring and I just thought (laughs) this place, this is unbelievable. Like I've just had the best experience here and I may have been asleep the whole time but i've it was just i don't know what goes on in that pyramid it's unbelievable
1: well it's the gongs it's the sound i don't know what they do and some of the sounds were crazy like i thought it would just be a sort of you know like a percussive gentle sort of rippling sound throughout the hour but these instruments they were bringing out there was one that was like you know those sort of children's toys that they turn upside down yes, to make it yes. sound like a sort of thunderstorm the minute that they got that I was like oh fuck's sake I'm not going to find any piece but sure enough it's it, it, it the whole orchestra of instruments sent me into this into this place of consciousness I think I've actually never been before. Yes. Well, this is what I think meditation is, isn't it? Like true meditation. It was just like total emptiness and just yeah. just presence and and peace.
0: It was amazing. I think there's like even like a didgeridoo or something that is played. Yes,
1: exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and every time that there would be a change in the sound, I was like, is this going to be the thing that breaks me out of it? And it didn't. <laughs>
0: wonder for you, obviously, as the relationship expert or people listen to you as that, have you felt a lot of pressure to be in a relationship, to always be in a relationship, to almost not be in a relationship so you can talk about relationships and, you know, because sometimes it's like the relationship person that gets married, then they're married. So, you know what I mean? Like, Mm. is there a certain pressure on you to have it right I mean professionally no I love my
1: readers so much but they can all go to hell in terms <laughs> of like having any opinion or about my own personal relationships and I don't think they do really and if they do I think it's with love you know there was like the last time I was on a promotional cycle was for my tv show and I was in a relationship then and I thought about just saying I'm single still. Um, but it she felt weird. I just don't like lying. Mm. So I, we did media training, all the producers as part of the TV show. And the, I was just told to say, I'm in mean, a relationship, it's early days. And that just kind of shut it down. And I remember at the time, a lot of girls would come up to me and they would say, is it true you have a boyfriend? And I'd say, yes. And they'd be like, oh, well, that makes me really sad. <laughs> Only because it's done from a place of love. I think they felt like, I think some of my readers felt like, you know, like I'm sort of, if I'm not single, then how are they meant to, you know, because I've written yes. so much about being single. I think they felt like there's a part of them that felt like, oh, I kind of want to be single forever. And then we're kind of all in it together forever. And I'm like that. I feel like that when my friends get married. Like I totally understand that. Whatever. I don't see any sort of pressure. I don't really talk about my marital status at all anymore. I sometimes do retrospectively, but I never talk about like the ins and outs really of what's going on in the day to day. So no, in terms of like societally, yeah, definitely. I mean, I've never I actually was writing about this in like my diary the other day. It makes me sound like a 14 year old. Me and my um one of my best friends, she lives in New York. And she's got two young children and she's a writer and she's really struggling to carve out any space for in her brain or in her schedule to write. So we have this shared diary that we write in every day. Wow. A really nice practice that we do. And it's a really good way of staying in touch as well. And sometimes it's really funny and sometimes it's about the, you know, what happened in that day and sometimes it's big life thoughts. Anyway, I was having a big life thought day the other day and I was thinking about the fact that you know, I've always wanted love and I've always wanted romance. I've never really craved partnership in a way that most normal people, I think, do. And I do wonder, I'm feeling it more as I get into my, I'm 35. I'm feeling, I really understand the need for, the the desire for like a teammate and partnership and like building a life for someone. I, I do understand that much more, um, but it's never really been a driving force for me choosing partners which is probably why I've had such bad boyfriends but I was just in this diary I was like you know I've always felt i was so loved by my parents and they're so my teammates in every way I do wonder if maybe that didn't leave enough of a gap or something for me to to replicate it in adulthood with a romantic partner which is maybe what I think a lot of people do that they're kind of, it's like a transference. Like mm. if they're lucky enough to have good parents, that kind of goes, that kind of community and network goes when you leave home. And then you're kind of trying to replicate it with someone else in a different way. I wonder if maybe, I don't know, there wasn't enough of a gap was left in my <laughs> life or something. I didn't feel that need. Like, I'm sure you won't mind me saying it. My brother's kind of the same. He's a bit of a lone wolf. He just doesn't need... Partnership in the way that other people do. I think maybe we, maybe we. He will get to my age and he will feel an in interest in it like I have. I don't know. It's not. I'm very aware of the societal pressure to be in a relationship, and I do feel societal pressures in so many ways. But on that side, not so much for me.
0: I've heard you say before that even though in female friendships you're kind of not the type that is needy is not the right word because I don't think people who like talking to people every second day or every day, needy sort of types, Mm. but you can have best friends, but you're happy to like go a bit without seeing them or speaking to them. And so that's probably just your personality type as well, which I think is a really great way to be because being the opposite, you're always craving having someone there. And then when they're not, there gets that energy of neediness and insecurity and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, and I wonder how much of it is, like, you know, I've had the same best friend since I was 11.
0: Yeah. Since, like, first
1: week of school, maths <laughs> class, basically. I've just had, like, the same best friend. We, we we talk all the time. We have dinner all the time. She's still, like, you it's a long time to have the same best friend. And I do wonder if, like, like, maybe the security we give each other that's so, like ingrained at this point and it sort of like washes its own face it sort of takes care of itself to an extent obviously we have to take care of our friendship but there's someone in the world other than my parents who knows everything about me and accepts everything about me Mm. that is an extraordinary liberation in terms of the way you move around about the world and I I do wonder sometimes if like the the debate the security of that relationship of whether that's what's afforded me a sort of wonderlust in other ways or a kind of rootlessness in other ways that I've just got this home base, like parents who always supported me and loved me and this woman that I have loved and she has loved me like since I was tiny, like may- maybe that's the thing that's like unlocked. I just feel really lucky in that sense. I feel, I feel like so, I feel like so, such an abundance of love from a lot of people in my life, but particularly from those people from my very beginnings.
0: Does that make any sense? No, it absolutely does. I think that's a a really beautiful thing. Do you have a desire to want to have kids or have they kind of filled that bucket as well?
1: No, I really do. I think it's for most women, it's the sort of great drama of your life, of Mm. the question of that. When you do it, how you do it, who you do it with, with the possibility of it being great, the possibility of it being terrible, the possibility of it being not working, you know. There are so many aspects to it that, that sort of circulate your mind all the time. Every woman I know now. And then obviously, like, what's so strange about it is you worry about it and think about it from the age of 30 to 40, sort of constantly. You worry about it so much that you forget that if it does happen there's a whole world of other problems. <laughs> it's not just the acquisition of a child, like of a baby. It's not like that's when it ends. It's like you then enter into this whole different level of the video game where it's like, I think sometimes like the worry about all that stuff, like fertility panic and motherhood panic. like, obviously someone like Sheila Hetty has written about so much. I think that can be such a preoccupation that I've seen with some of my friends. They've admitted that the baby arrives and they forgot that that that's when the difficult stuff begins. Absolutely.
0: You know, I wonder also like when we were talking about having kind of tragedy in our lives and we talked about your friend and things that i personally been through myself. And then you think, ah, why didn't I take it all for granted? And then when we, you know, you think about these other things that the fertility stuff, you worry about it. And then when it happens, it's like, why did I spend so much time worrying about this stuff? Why does this take up my thoughts? And my life was so good then, and now something really bad's happened. Why did I take the good life for granted? And was worrying about why that colleague at work looked at me wrong in a wrong way, or said something to me, and that kept me up at night. You know, where well, there's, it's like uh, we must appreciate life.
1: I totally agree, I, and, and I really do. I've really felt from like thirty to thirty-five. I feel like the ghost of Dolly Future whoever she is and how, whether she has children or not, like I have felt her presence so much in my life in moments of just like, just enjoy where you are right now. Because I think the thirties is kind of a magic moment for so many women because, mm. if, you know, you finally are making headway in your career. You finally, hopefully have a bit of money that's your own. You kind of are more accepting of who you are. You understand your body better. You're taking better care of yourself and it's annoying that in that moment it's like you get you get this like hinterland between the like freedom of youth and the stability of of like early middle age you have this like pocket of time where you have wisdom but you have youth and you have freedom but you but it's not um you know this limitless and you really understand the value of things and that's the exact moment when society is like You need to stress out every single day about whether you're going to be a parent. So it means that it's sort of stolen from you, this moment, if you're not careful. This really magic moment in life
0: is kind of taken
1: from you. So I'm trying really hard to just be in it, just to be present in it.
0: I know we spoke about looks at the start and being in the public eye, but I wonder, I was just away actually in Dubai, and I noticed there was, maybe even compared to Australia, a heap of plastic surgery Well, not just plastic surgery, like people putting fillers and lips and all that kind of stuff. And I wonder, have you felt a pressure to do that kind of stuff and also being in the public eye where it seems like everyone kind of gets this stuff done? I wonder, yeah, how do you deal with that? It's very common here, particularly amongst girls my age. I totally understand why you would do it.
1: I think the way that that work has progress now i think that a lot of the time it's very natural and you can't really notice it who knows i might change my mind about this for now i'm pretty certain it's not for me and that's for a couple of reasons i mean the first is i've always like from quite a young age with this job i've realized that what really matters is the is the writing Mm. all the other stuff as i said it's like a fun thing that happens on the side It's nice to go to parties. It's nice to get dressed. It's nice to have nice pictures, but it doesn't really matter. I'm lucky. Like that's, what's great about being a writer. It's a female writer. It's difficult in lots of other ways and challenging in lots of ways, but really it doesn't matter what I look like. So any pressure on that side of things professionally is a pressure that I'm putting on myself. Mm. You know, like look at Pamela Anderson, like she, She just chose not to turn up to fashion week wearing Paris fashion week, wearing makeup. Yeah. And she's also being lauded for that in a way that I find kind of strange. But she's, you know, you can decide these things. Mm. You can just decide to not give a shit. And uh, increasingly I am getting a bit better at that. And then in terms of personally with the work stuff, here's what I worked out because a lot of people in my life do it and do it habitually and it looks really good. I have a massive fear of ageing and dying and i have done since i was tiny for no other reason than i'm just peter pan i just want to live forever i just want to live in never Neverland. i want every day to be like long and perfect and exciting and i want more experience and like more travel and more food i want to like stop time and not get older and i just want to i just want to live forever like I, that is totally from a place of like immaturity and being a sport brat <laughs> And But I'm aware of it in myself that I don't like engaging. Like I'm obsessed with death, but I don't like engaging with the reality of it. And I don't want to die. With that in mind, me doing something every three weeks, every three months to try and hold back the tides of time, it's just not good for my psyche. It's just part of being this life and this journey is me like journeying towards the end and accepting that it's a beautiful part of life and it's what gives life meaning. Like I have to do a lot of work to accept that. So, like, trying to hold back time on my face, just for me, I just know that will just mess things up in my head mm. with this journey that I'm trying to move towards. So, it's quite hard because increasingly I'm sitting next to women at the pub and over dinner who, you know, it's 2018 on their face and it's <laughs> 2023 on mine. <laughs> you know, that's confronting. But I just know how I'll react. And I just also know that. If I spend all that time and money making t- time stop for a bit, what I also know, having seen people who do it for a long time, it does stop working at some yeah, point. It does. At some point, you do have to just look your age. And I know for me, if I've battled, and again, this is not for everyone, this is just for me and my, the way my mind works. If I battled against it for 30 years, I know by the, mo- the moment I give up, that will feel really heartbreaking for me mm. rather than, if I'm not fighting it. I just think the moment that I look like an old lady, I'll be a bit more robust
0: and prepared for it. Mm. It's interesting because I saw in the tabloids yesterday, Jennifer Lawrence, who I don't think she's very old. She's obviously done some stuff and it was just like ridicule against her. Like, you know, people writing, what has she done to her face? And the headlines, you know, they were awful headlines. Like, just leave her alone. Like, who cares? Whatever. She's gotten some work done to her face. Good for her. Also,
1: like, the fact that, I mean, this is obviously at this point it's, like, the most trite thing to say, but I just think it's hard enough being a woman in this world with the pressures that we have on us, mm. which basically say, like, stay as, like, young and fuckable and fertile f- f- as you can mm. forever. And then when we see, like, and it's such a such a noise around us all the time, and when you see a woman, like, Take that on board and internalize that, or, or just like, just make a decision. Like, maybe that's not why Jennifer Lawrence did it. Maybe it's just because she wanted to do it. And at that moment, to be like, like, had to meant for that to be like a gotcha moment
0: mm.
1: is just so strange,
0: so weird. So weird. I wonder for you, Dolly, what is the best advice that you have ever been given?
1: You know, something that my mum used to say to me when we were little that was, I think, such a good thing to say as a parent. And I really only understand the importance of it as as I get older. And it's a very simple sentiment. She would always say to to me and my brother, there's nothing that we can't get through. There's nothing that we can't work through together. And I really, really believed that. And I still really do believe that. And it's what I say to my friends now in difficult times. And it's what I say to myself, that life is not meant to be friction-free, that there will always be challenges there will always be tragedies there will always be discomfort and that's no failure or no sign of impending disaster it you it's a it's part of the experience of life and there is always a way you can get through it
0: what's something that you wish for yourself uh to be more present that's that's the main
1: goal of life now that's the thing that I'm kind of working on all the time is to just to be less in the past, less in the future, less in the fantastical and the imagined and more just in the here and now. Mm.
0: What's your greatest hope for society today? Beyond the planet that's cared
1: for and safe and survives. Um, I just hope for more
0: compassion, more patience more good faith in each other. Besides the one that you just mentioned before, do you have another favorite prayer or saying or mantra? be here, I just say, I say it all the time, be here, be here. That's what
1: I'm always kind of saying to myself because mm-hmm. it's just a time zone that I struggle to be in. And it is, you know, to sound like a bit of a supermarket Buddhist, it is sort of all we have. It's mm-hmm. all that's promised to us is here and now. So that's the great life's work for me right now.
0: What is a life of greatness to you? That's a great question. A life of greatness for me is a life
1: full of relationships, a life full of love and experiences together, conversation, laughter, enjoyment, pleasure, eating together, sitting in the sun together, holding each other in the more difficult moments, intimacy, lot like long, long conversations, shared, like shared baths and shared walks and shared beds, just like a life of meaningful connection. That is a great, great life for me.
0: Dolly, your new book, Good Material, is a must read. You're one of the most beautiful writers I think I've ever
1: read and I've read a
0: lot of books. Thank you so much for the conversation today. I'm so very grateful. I've absolutely loved talking to you. And look, my little
1: cat has come round to say goodbye to you. Oh, bless. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind the scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you'd love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.